Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 37 of the Fiduciary You podcast. On today's episode, the one and only Fred Reese joins me to discuss emerging regulatory trends affecting advisory firms and advisors. Here's a fun fact. Fred is the first repeat guest on the show. He was originally guest number four all the way back in September 2020. During our conversation today, we focus much of our discussion on the new fiduciary advice exemption, PTE 2020-02, which became effective on February 16, 2021. The new prohibited transaction rules cast a wide net, impacting both qualified plans and IRAs, and the compliance requirements are significant. Fred shares his concerns about the confusion he's seeing with regards to the effective compliance dates, the new and expanded requirements that both advisory firms and advisors must adhere to, how the new rules create conflicts of interest when making rollover recommendations, and what must be done to mitigate these issues, and how different types of firms are approaching education versus specific advice on the different rollover options, as well as how they're dealing with the new disclosure requirements. Towards the end of the show, we also discuss the recent and somewhat controversial sub-regulatory guidance by the DOL on cryptocurrencies, why this guidance was so much different and explicit than the norm, practical considerations for firms and advisors when advising on crypto for plan sponsors, and how the guidance on crypto and private equity are closely aligned. This was a really great episode, lots of really good information from Fred, and I hope you enjoy the show. Fred, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Um, You're actually the first repeat guest. You were one of my early guests on the show uh, a little over a year ago, and uh, glad to have you back. Thanks for joining. Well, Josh, thank you very much. Uh, good to be here. And, you know, we had, Josh and I had a little pre-conference, as you might imagine, before the podcast, and uh, I think we have some really interesting things to talk about. So, Josh, lead the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, lots going on out in the marketplace right now, and uh, we're going to cover uh, a number of topics. Um but I think a good place to start uh, would be um, around rollovers. That's obviously, you know, a kind of a, a, a hot topic and a, a major priority, especially with um, some of the kind of uh, deadlines uh, for being in compliance and enforcement dates and stuff like that. So uh, I know just from our conversations and then seeing, I think, at the FI360 conference as well that, that you spoke at is, um, you've got potentially some concerns about, um, you know, uh, firms and advisory firms, uh, especially in broker dealers, especially on maybe the smaller to mid market side, uh, that may not have their ducks in a row around uh, around rollover. So, talk a little bit about, you know, what the the kind of the rule is and and some of the important dates, and you know, some of the issues you think are are happening based on what you're seeing out in the marketplace. Sure. And and let me just do a little bit of background definitionally so that we're all on the same page. Um, But what Josh and I are talking about is prohibited transaction exemption 2020-02. 
uh, issued by the Department of Labor uh, back in the during actually during the Trump administration, uh, but became effective during the Biden administration. And there's two parts to the prohibited transaction exemption. In the preamble, the Department of Labor says, hey, we're reinterpreting the five-part test for fiduciary advice in a way that captures a lot more people. The biggest capture, as Josh suggested, will be in the rollover area. But it applies to all conflicted advice to plans, participants, and a rollover recommendation is considered fiduciary advice to participants, uh, and IRAs. So if you're thinking this is a retirement plan issue, you're wrong. This is also an IRA issue. And the, the, um, so what is a, the fiduciary interpretation now? Well, if you recommend, I'll give you one example. If you recommend a rollover and then you're going to advise the uh, rollover IRA, the Department of Labor says, well, we think that recommendation to rollover is a recommendation to liquidate the account balance in the IRA, a sell recommendation. And we think that's connected to the rollover recommendation. And we think that's connected to how you recommend the, the IRA be invested. In other words, it's on a continuum. Mm. They used to separate it. The Department of Labor used to say rollover is one thing, investing the IRA is another. Now they're saying it's all on a continuum. Therefore, you satisfy the regular basis or ongoing basis prong of the five-part test. The other four parts are almost automatically satisfied. Boom, you're a fiduciary for the rollover recommendation. And, and, uh, and historically, just to, 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 to kind of be clear, is that, you know, DOL had kind of, enforcement oversight, if you will, on, you know, the qualified space, but it was really the IRS when it came to IRAs, right? And the, well, the, the, crazy the DOL yeah, pulling crazy. in now oversight when it comes to, you know, to IRAs, that's, that's you know, and, and that's something that could, could potentially, it's a whole new world, if you will, a lot for wealth management firms that historically have, have been in the IRA space, even if they didn't yeah. play in the qualified plan space. Some of the broker dealers I work with, Josh, tell me that as much as 50% of the money that they advise is, is in IRAs. Right. So we're talking a big part of broker dealer business. And I, I haven't had those conversations with investment advisors, but I suspect the numbers are also very it's, it's true. It's true. 100%. On the wealth management. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, there, there's a whole history behind that that's sort of crazy. Back in 1978, there was a presidential delegation order that said that even though the Department of Labor couldn't regulate, uh, examine, or audit IRAs, it could write prohibited transaction exemptions. In other words, a presidential de delegation order said, we don't want two different agencies writing rules about very, very similar laws, the prohibited transaction provisions in the code and the prohibited transaction provisions in ERISA. Therefore, we will uh, delegate all that to one agency. So it's been very quiet, but it's it's actually been there, what the, that's 44 years. And but they do have the authority to write the rule, but they can't then enforce the rule. They actually built here some enforcement mechanisms. And for example, one of the, there's four categories of requirements and I'm putting the cart ahead, ahead of the horse here. We'll come back to the, to the cart, but or to the horse. But um, one of the mechanisms is every year, every person listening to this podcast, if your firm allows you to recommend that IRAs be transferred from other firms to your firm, or allows you to recommend rollovers from plans to IRAs. Every year from now on, in the first six months of a year, they're going to have to do an annual retrospective review and report of compliance 
for the prior year. So 2022 is the first year. That first report will be somewhere between January 1 and June 30, 2023. And that has to be signed off on by a, a senior executive of the firm, and it has to be provided to the DOL upon request. Well, believe me, that is, in fact, an enforcement mechanism, even though they don't have any enforcement authority. Uh, another thing, you have to have policies and procedures to mitigate conflicts of interest. For example, with a rollover, and remember, this just applies to retirement accounts. Like I said at the beginning, plans, participants, and IRAs. Um, but you have to have policies and procedures to mitigate the conflicts of interest of the firm, for example, the RIA firm, and the advisor. Uh, now, you might say, well, gee, how's that an enforcement mechanism? Well, the SEC, when they come in to look at you, will say, are you following your policies and procedures? So they've, it's not just the IRS anymore. It's not that nice, quiet, backwater alley that IRAs used to be in. Now, now they're being put out on the main street from a regulatory and enforcement perspective. And I think, geez, a huge number of people are, are overlooking that. And as you said earlier, Josh, it's it's mainly mid-market and lower. The, the the big broker dealers, the big RIAs, they're lawyered up. They know this stuff. Uh, they're working on it. They have been working on it. Uh, so anyway, there there it is. And any any CCO of Greenspring for 15 years, and so um, and and had been through a um, you know an SEC audit. Um, uh, I can just say right now, like I would have been the guy probably signing off on all of that. Um, glad I build technology now instead of, <laughs> instead of, instead well, no, of having to do that. Josh, I think and. Probably 100% of the cases I'm working on it is the CCO that's yeah. going to be tasked not only with doing the, the annual retrospective review, reducing it to a written report, but also signing off on it. So you got out just in the nick of time. Josh. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> so, well, can I let me go back and pick up a yeah. little bit on this. And I'm going to, most RIA firms uh, are pure level fee and their advice to IRAs. So, you know, for ongoing advice to IRAs, there's no conflict of interest there. Charging a level fee isn't a conflict. Getting a commission is a conflict. Proprietary products are conflicts. Uh, getting revenue sharing from the custodian is a conflict. Uh, but pure level fee investment management or level fee investment advice is not a conflict. So for the moment, at least, we can take those off. So if you're a fee, let, let's say if you're a fee-only RIA. Exactly. You, you know, you you the landmines... Um, are going to be a lot fewer, really probably your focus should be on what, whether it's technology we, we use, like what's the, how do we kind of implement this documentable process in order to oh. make it clear that we're in compliance? Um, you know, you're unlikely to have some of the potential issues that if maybe you were duly registered or you're getting indirect comp, that that's, takes it kind of to a whole different level in terms of um, maybe the risk spectrum is if you actually have these these more clear conflicts of interest. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a, a definitely a process and documentation supervision issues where you need the technology to do all that. Um, well, let me narrow this even a little bit further. Most advice to plans is level fee. And most advice, if you're, rec if you're managing a participant account, is level fee. So where do we get the conflict? Well, it's back to what I said earlier. Either you recommend a rollover from a plan to an IRA, 
In which case, if the participant says, no, I won't, you make nothing. But if the participant says, yes, I will, then maybe you make 1% per year managing that account for the next 30 years. So big conflict of interest. Similarly, if you recommend that somebody transfer their IRA from another firm to your firm, make nothing if they don't. You make a percent a year in my hypothetical if you do. Those are the two irreconcilable conflicts that I think every advisory firm out there will face. And as you might imagine, over on the broker-dealer side, there's tons of conflicts. Every commission is a conflict. Every revenue share is a conflict. I mean, every uh, sub-TA fee is a conflict. So, um, but... Just looking at the RIA firm, there's two that they just can't get out of no matter what they do if they're making recommendations to transfer IRAs or to uh, roll over from a plan to an IRA. Now, the there are three effective dates here, and this will be the last part of setting the stage, and then we can get into some of the more technical, some of my concerns about people complying. But um, the if... if um, when you recommend, well, anyway, those are irreconcilable conflicts. And when you recommend that somebody roll over, yeah, you have a conflict and you have to comply with effectively three rules that came in at different dates. Uh, the first one is this expanded fiduciary definition. It says, hey, if you recommend that rollover, you're going to advise the IRA, you're a fiduciary. That came into effect February 16, 2021. So even though people don't realize that, lots of folks don't realize that, that's, you've been a fiduciary, but the, the, some of the specific rules have been delayed by a non-enforcement policy that says if you do a good faith job of being a good fiduciary, then you don't have to worry about some of these other rules. Most of the conditions in the prohibited transaction exemption, there's four sets of conditions, were delayed until February 1 of this year. In other words, it's already in effect. The last part that unfortunately has confused a lot of people about what the real effective date is, the last part comes into effect July 1, which is beginning July 1, anytime you recommend a transfer of an IRA or a rollover from a plan to an IRA, you have to provide the participant or IRA owner with the specific reasons in writing why that's in their best interest. If you don't do that, it's a prohibited transaction. Your compensation is strictly prohibited. Uh, there's a correction mechanism in the exemption. But um, that's and, – and what I'm concerned about, Josh, is a lot of people thought that July 1 date or the, the, the non-enforcement policy expires June 30. So it, the rules become effective July 1. So they may have heard one date or the other, but, but it's really the same date. Um, a lot of people thought that meant none of these rules come into effect until then. And, of course, that's not true. And that's part of my worry. There's a misunderstanding. The other part is I just don't think people have heard enough about this. I mean, I'm worried that, that um, you know, I know who I'm getting calls from. I know who I'm helping with this work. It tends to be the bigger firms, uh, some small firms, but not that many. And I'm just wondering if they're not hearing about it from their compliance officers or from the literature they read or what's going on, but it's just too quiet, which makes me think there's a problem with people understanding what they need to do. So, And that's a big one in terms of like disgorging profits, right? I mean, that, that, I could really start to hit firms, you know, in, in the wallet um, and could get, you know, could certainly yeah. get, well, me... certainly get, um, could get very, 
could get very expensive. Um, oh, yeah. And and they're going to have, if they aren't paying attention, they're going to have multiple violations on each transaction. So it's not just like, uh, gee, I missed it on these three, but I satisfied it on those 10. Uh, you're going to miss it on these three, on three or four points that you failed to do. And on these 10, you're going to miss it on another three or four points. Because just to run through that very quickly, part of one of the easy things to satisfy at first blush is that you have to make a recommendation that's in the best interest of the participant or IRA owner, sort of a combination of the fiduciary rule and duty of loyalty. Um, but that means there's five steps to that. Number one, you have to get the proper information about the participant. Uh, I think most people are probably doing that. Number two, you have to have information about the plans, investments, services, and expenses. I'm worried people aren't getting that. I, I'm just, I'm worried that they don't realize that the game has changed and that DOL, DOL has said you cannot make a best interest recommendation without that information. Number three, you have to have information about the investment services and expenses in the IRA. Well, everybody's got that because that's their IRA. Uh, number four, you have to evaluate the plan information and the IRA information in light of number one, the participant information. In other words, looking at all of this and mixing it together and making a stew out of it, how do I make it the right stew for the participant? And then number five, beginning July 1, you have to provide the participant with the specific reasons that why you determined it was in the best uh, interest of the participant. Um, the DOL, for example, which has a very, or the SEC rather, which has a very similar rule, has said, well, they, they issued some Q&As and one question was, well, what if the participant says that's what they prefer? They prefer a rollover. The DOL said that's not enough. Mm. Or the SEC, I just keep confusing. I'm sorry. The SEC says that's not enough. It is instead your objective determination as an advisor, as a fiduciary, of what's in the best interest of the participant, even though you can take their preferences into account. So, again, I think I'm seeing people say, oh, gee, that's what the person wants. Well, that's a directed transaction and should be treated as such. That's not, and that's not a recommendation. Uh, and then, so anyway, I, that's that that best interest process that I'm. Then there are all kinds of disclosures and stuff that you know we won't get that far into the weeds. But uh, I'm worried that people don't realize that they need to be doing all of that, and that they need to have a source of the plan data, and they need to have a vehicle. Uh, <clears throat> You know, uh, which may be technology driven, mm -hmm. but it starts off that technology we're talking about, Josh, you start with saying we've got to identify every IRA transfer recommendation that we make in 20, beginning February 1, 2022. Everyone has to be identified. Why? Well, because in 2023, you have to do the annual retrospective review. And guess what you have to review? All those IRA transfer recommendations. You don't have uh, to do that, though. Let's say, let's say that in 2020, you know, I picked up a new advisory client. Um, let's say that was with another advisory firm at their custodian, not a, not from a, not a, not from a, a qualified plan, but had an IRA at, you know, advisory firm XYZ was no longer satisfied with advisory firm XYZ. I meet with them. You know, present, do some analysis, you know, present kind of my recommendations. The client, again, in 2020 says, 
you know what, Josh, I like you and your firm. I want to transfer my accounts to you. Once they've transferred them and let's say in 2020, we do that, they become a client, we roll over their accounts, send in an ACAT. Now we've got their, do you have to on, since the, the transfer took place in 2020, well now that client is a client of my firm and there is no, you know, there is no transfer. They've already moved their IRA over. Do I have to do compliance every year on that client? Um, since no transfer, like they already a couple of years ago transferred their their account or is it only on during kind of like this you know starting let's say february 16th 2021 as an example um any transfers that occur moving forward kind of that one-time transfer and then any subsequent maybe somebody had an ira they moved it over they were still working and they retire and then they've got, you know, their 401k that they want to roll over into, you know, an IRA with me. I need to do compliance on that IRA or on that, that, that 401k rollover, but not on the prior IRA that's already been moved to me. Does that make sense? Let me, yeah, let me give you a perfect lawyer answer, which is on the one hand, there's this. And on the other hand, there's that, um, the, that IRA that came over years ago, um, if you're an RIA and you're providing pure level fee advice, then no, there's no, you don't have to go back to the fact that it was a IRA transfer or even a rollover. That, that money was being managed by you before these rules took effect. Now, um, now we come to the rollover this year. Well, let me, but before I get to the rollover this year, say, but if you were a broker dealer rather than an RIA, and you got that that transferred IRA years ago, but today you make a recommendation to switch out of the ABC mutual fund to the XYZ mutual fund, and you get a front end load on that. That is a new conflict of interest. It is prohibited. And now you got to comply with all the rules for that new recommendation. So it's triggered by the conflict of interest. There has to be a conflict of interest from non-discretionary advice in a retirement account. That's those are like the threshold issues. So, but if you're a pure level fee, there is no conflict. That IRA you got years ago, you're fine. Now that same person comes to you and says, but that's not. So there's a transfer, but then there's like from how you actually invest the money. The example you just used there was, hey, we got the transfer, but now we want to right. make an investment change, and that investment change has a material. Let's just say. I'm a broker dealer and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm moving you into a fund that let's say is just going to pay me a higher, you know, commission, if you will, on this fund over that fund. That's where there, there's an issue. Actually, how you're investing the money each time you have a conflict, if it impacts how you get paid. If I now, and, and most RIAs manage money on in IRAs on discretionary on a discretionary basis, uh, right? If I'm level fee and I'm like, okay, now we're gonna, you know, we're gonna sell this fund over here, we're gonna sell that fund over there. It doesn't, you know, I'm level fee. It doesn't impact when I'm trading your portfolio. I'm not getting paid more to switch you out of funds. I don't, I don't have an issue. Is that fair? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. The only place I see. RIAs have problems on this real world because they're managing with discretion and they recommend or they select 
no transaction fee funds and get revenue sharing from the custodian. In that case, there is no exemption. Uh, that is a prohibited transaction without an exemption because it was with discretion. And PTE 2020-02 only gives relief for non-discretionary recommendations. So I've actually helped some uh, investment advisors carve out a portion of the portfolios they manage within IRAs uh, and convert them to non-discretionary. Uh, for example, with a proprietary product of some kind, mm -hmm. the, the investment advisor may have a mutual fund. Yeah. And one of the opportunities created by this is that the investment advisor can have that fund if they carve out their advice relative to their proprietary products as being non-discretionary. So it's not all downside. There's actually some upside to creating opportunities, but you have to comply mm. and it has to be non-discretionary. Okay. Uh, let me, there's a really important thing I want to mention about that, your, your 401k rollover hypothetical, Josh. So I don't want to get too far away from that. Yeah. Uh, the, th that person that you already, you're already managing their IRA from a IRA transfer years ago. They say, Hey, I'm retiring, Josh. Uh, and I've got this 401k account. The words that follow that are critical. If the person, the client was on to say, and I've decided to take it out of the plan and roll it over to you within my IRA you have, you made no recommendation. That was what I call unsolicited. P the PTE 2020-02 and the prohibited transaction rules require a recommendation before everything, anything is triggered. Uh, okay, so that's one. Mm. Uh, one scenario, and but document it because the regulators are going to be very, uh, they're going to be curious, let's say, about unsolicited money because it's too easy. Uh, number two is the person says to you after that, you know, I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm retiring. Uh, I've got this money in the 401k. And then they say the words that trigger it all. And Josh, what do you think I should do? So... And you say, you have two things you can say at that point, and they're very different. Here's a fork in the road. One thing you can say that we haven't talked about yet is, uh, look at Fred. Uh, this is one of the most important financial decisions you're going to make in your lifetime. This is your retirement nest. This is your security and retirement. I'm going to tell you about how your four alternatives are. Leave it in the plan. Uh, take a taxable distribution roll to the plan of a new employer, but you're retiring, so there won't be one of those, or roll over to an IRA. And I'll give you the advantages and disadvantages that would apply to most people, and I'll answer any questions you have, but I don't want to make a recommendation because I really, because that's what I think. This should be what you think is right for you. So this is that that's really called, kind of like education or exactly. guidance, not a recommendation, not advice, because you're just really kind yeah. of presenting the information. Now, now, in the real world, what happens is you present that information, they go, okay, well, what should I do? Well, the real, and the, the real world is the third option. Uh, the, the, but, but we actually create brochures and, and uh, policies and procedures and forms for people to want to go the education route. Some very small advisory firms say, Fred, we, you know, now that you've told us all the requirements of PT 2020-02, we, we just don't want it. We don't have the wherewithal to do that. We're, we're a small outfit. That's time consuming. It involves some expense. So we, we don't want to do that. Uh, and they are going the education route, but that's typical only of the smallest firms. It's also unsolicited and educational actually work pretty well where you're already managing money for somebody. 
because they already know you. And it's credible that they would decide to roll over with you without you making a recommendation. That's a harder story to tell if you're talking about somebody you just met at a rotary meeting. I mean, you know, it's it's like, why would they do that? Uh, so, but in the third one, they, you, you provide this brilliant education, as I know you would, Josh, um, and you, you lay it all out for them. I mean, you know, anybody could understand it. It's clear, it's meaningful. And they say, wow, thanks for educating me. What do you think I should do? Okay, now you're out of recommendation. And now that, that, that's a recommendation to engage in a non-discretionary uh, or non-discretionary recommendation to engage in a transaction that causes you to make more money. That is the additional money from the, from the IRA. You're, you're, you're right in the heart of the prohibited transaction rules. You need 2020-02. You need to be complying. And frankly, that's probably the biggest single reason why I'm worried about people who may not be in full compliance. Uh, and why I think we got to let people know about this July 1 date, because there's no way around that. Either you gave those specific reasons in writing, and they're good reasons, or you didn't, in which case you don't get the protection. You lost your compensation. Uh, and the, you know, when I say there better be good reasons, keep in mind that the regulators, the SEC, the DOL, the IRS, they don't come in today and look at a transaction you're recommending today. They come in two years from now and look at what you did today. So you say the specific reason is that there's a whole bunch more investments in an IRA. We have greater opportunities in IRA. It's really going to be meaningful to you. Therefore, you ought to roll to an IRA. They come in two years from now and they see after they rolled over, you just invested in them in mutual funds or ETFs that were very similar to the plan. Well, that specific reason didn't hold up. Mm. And that that advice is in, in jeopardy. Uh, so these specific reasons aren't just words on a page. And yes, they need to be automated by technology somehow, but they really need to be individualized to that particular retirement investor such that you're saying, here's something meaningful I can do for you. And I think advisors should not just think of themselves as investment advisors, but think of yourself as a consultant. I will help you with your financial plan. It's, the, it's plan. the planning, in my opinion. Like that is the big, you know, that that is the comprehensive planning, which is really, you know, which is really the differentiator, um, in my opinion. Uh, oh, I agree. I mean, let's say the that's plan. what separates, you know, different, you know, different, different services. You know, most participants even if they have a retirement plan advisor or consultant advisor on the plan and even doing wellness, like you're not getting actual kind of comprehensive planning that wealth firms typically do. So it seems to me like that is the biggest way you're kind of talking about apples and oranges. Like, yeah, you're getting investment advice, but really you're getting investment advice in the context of a comprehensive planning engagement that you wouldn't be getting to the same extent as a participant in a plan. Oh, yeah. And in and, and a lot of ways, too, Josh, uh, if there are other assets, individual accounts, yeah. other IRAs, this money, this qualified money, um, who's, who's looking at that comprehensively to make sure that the aggregate portfolio makes sense? Who's looking at that in terms of uh, tax positioning, the different investments to the appropriate accounts? Uh, yeah. When you get to retirement, you know, sustainable retirement income, uh, you get to Roth versus traditional 
uh, pre-tax versus personal assets and helping decide how to withdraw money, where to withdraw from, when to withdraw it, how much, all of that. that that's where services can more than justify the cost differential. Yeah. When the government comes in, the first question they'll say is, uh, you're charging 150 basis points a year between your fees and the underlying expense ratios. It was 50 basis points in the plan. That's 1% per year being charged to this person for the rest of their lives. Justify it. That's exactly what you're talking about. And I agree with you 100%. And, and you know, another thing just with kind of technology and whatnot, I mean, we, we used to do this at, at, you know, my firm as well, some of the technology there that was like, look, We've got this comprehensive planning arrangement and we weren't a fiduciary. Um, we weren't a fiduciary to the plan, right? Um, I, this is on our, our private wealth side where, you know, we would have a client and let's just say they had a million bucks in, um, you know, in IRAs and brokerage accounts um, that, we, that we managed. And then they also were obviously an employee in a, you know, employer sponsored plan at their company. And let's just say they had another half a million dollars in that, in that plan, but that we didn't have it. We, we actually didn't as the, we weren't the advisor to that plan. We had a private client that had, was an, was, uh, you know, was an employee. And, you know, w what we would do in a lot of cases is say, look, leave the assets in the plan. We will still, from a comprehensive standpoint, you know, manage and provide planning on your entire picture. And, you know, we could charge on the entire relationship, even if the assets were stayed in the plan and were invested. And I suspect that that's what some RIAs may do as well. If you've got a good, let's just say you've got a client that has money in a plan and it's a good, you know, it's a good plan and they have a, you know, a good kind of, you know, low cost lineup, like you may just say, hey, we'll manage the entire relationship. You keep your assets in the plan and then you don't have a, you know, you're, you're, you're still getting paid on it to advise holistically and comprehensively, but you haven't made a rollover recommendation because the portion of the portfolio that that half a million dollars in assets is invested in will leverage the plan investments. Does that make sense? Sure. No, absolutely. And I, and I, I think the way to get around uh, it as well, where you're not kind of triggering, because I think wealth firms are going to have a lot of trouble, quite frankly, that don't play in the 401k space. I think they're going to have a hard time understanding like the fees and the services um, provided in the plan uh, and to really get their head around like what the costs of the plan actually are. I think that could, yeah. I think that could be an issue. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I've done work for some of the major multi-billion dollar 401k plans. And one of them, the single most expensive investment was 14 basis points. And that's because of the insurance wrap on the stable value. Yeah. <laughs> if you, the uh, S&P 500 index fund was two basis points. Uh, I mean, what are you going to do if you could actually manage that, if you had access to that account and you could manage it, plus you could do holistic planning. I mean, think of how, the really good things you could do for that client in that context. Now, granted, you can get an ETF or you can get, I mean, Fidelity has zero cost index funds. I mean, you, I think the, the, um, I mean, there, there are ways to get, I think, comparable cost investments kind of outside a plan, but to kind of your point, 
you know, especially the larger plans that are going to have really, really low cost, you know, institutional funds, like it may make sense, you know, um, advisors will have to make a determination. Does that make sense? Can we still manage it? Do we have the technology in place that lets us kind of with these held, held away accounts still be able, because there is an investment, you know, when you have discretion over all the assets and you're running it through your portfolio management system and you can place the trades at Schwab or Fidelity or, you know, Pershing or wherever, it, there is a lot, it's a lot easier to be able to manage a portfolio of investments as opposed to if 30% of the assets are in a 401k plan. Well, now you got to figure out like, how do we go in and make trades on that side? I mean, it is less efficient. Um, so there, there, you know, I think the key here is that, you know, if, if you're an advisor and if you're a smaller mid-market, let's say RIA or, or, or BD, um, is just making sure that you're getting the right, you know, the right guidance. You should call Fred. Um, he's expensive, <laughs> but he's worth it. He's worth it. He knows his stuff. But just making sure that you've got your, your I's dotted and you've got your, your T's crossed um, because the stakes are going up and, and there are complexities. There are complexities around this. I suspect what most RIAs are going to do is that, you know, in a new relationship, this stuff is going to be embedded into like their advisory agreement. So this will be like, there'll be a form or a one pager or something that whether through DocuSign or physically or whatever, a client's going to have to kind of check off and sign off on the fact that they were provided the information and so on. And that, that seems to me the easiest way to comply with a new relationship when you do a rollover transfer is you build it into the onboarding process when you're getting your advisory agreement put in place, when you're providing your ADV and so on and so forth. Is that, is that what you're seeing like your clients do in a lot of ways is kind of build that into the, it's another set of documents or agreements that need to get signed in addition to, you know, the new client. Page. Yeah. Yeah. Part and part, Josh, there's most are creating a new document, particularly a rollover form, yeah. transfer form that has some of the disclosures right at the beginning. Then it discusses, um, you know, the considerations. Then it has like a check the box approach to yeah. your specific reasons. And then they have the, the advisor and the uh, participants sign off on it. But there is a, but some of the others like uh, things are, disclosures are being folded into the ADV, into the IMA, uh, maybe a standalone disclosure document that's given out with a CRS. But yes, it's all being, it's being packaged yeah. one way or another. When you have a client's attention or a new client, like get them to sign all the paperwork at, the, you know, at the front end, yeah. not having to chase them down, uh, having to chase them down afterwards. Uh, that's like getting, you know, refinancing your house. It's like after a while, you just sign without reading. Right, exactly. I mean, that's a terrible thing for a lawyer to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually think there's some, some, uh, uh, some things going on, some cases that are out there that just show that, you know, nobody reads disclosures and paperwork. They just, you know, they basically, they sign it and they sign it and go. Um, let's talk about, let's transition because, um, you know, a hot topic right now is obviously crypto and 401k plans. And, and you had Fidelity a few weeks ago announce that, that, they were going to be able to provide access to digital assets within 401k plans for uh, plan sponsor clients. Um, what was interesting, just as an observer, was um, the approach that they took that it would be, a, as I understand it, a DIA 
which imposes instead of like a, you know, like a self-directed or a brokerage window where they could access it, it actually becomes a DIA and being a DIA now kind of comes under the purview of fiduciaries in terms of selection and monitoring. Um, also that they were going to provide up to, as I read, 20% of a participant's balance could be allocated to these, uh, to these digital assets. And they really did it, you know, a few weeks after the DOL, um, came out and basically, um, pretty succinctly said, like, we think because of the speculative nature that crypto is not a good idea in, in, uh, in qualified plans. And, um, you know, Fidelity basically kind of thumbed their nose at them. So what, what's your take on that? What, what, what are some of the specifics around the guidance, you know, around crypto? I saw Elizabeth Warren was now, uh, you know, up in her neck of the woods with Fidelity. She was making all types of comments. When you're on like the DOL's radar and you're on the uh, Elizabeth Warren's radar, it's probably not for yeah. most people. Like, if you got the pockets Fidelity has, maybe you're not that worried. But for most people, I'd be kind of scared. What's your take <laughs> on what's happening in the crypto world? Yeah, I you know just to give people uh, a feeling for what I'm why I'm going to conclude what I'm going to conclude um, the in the first paragraph of that DOL guidance. If anybody wants to look up the guidance, by the way, just just uh, Google DOL guidance on cryptocurrency. It'll come up. Uh, the uh, in the first paragraph it says fiduciaries should exercise extreme caution. And, and selecting cryptocurrency investments for their plans or including them in their plans. And, uh, it, you know, I, unlike most people, I read government guidance all the time. And, and as a general rule of thumb, they do not use adjectives and adverbs in governmental guidance. It so is ex really so extreme, the word extreme is an indicator. Yeah, that would be like the cape of a red cape of a bullfighter. I mean, that's like, look at here. And, um, then they say, here are the reasons why we're worried about it. And they list like five or six reasons like uh, valuation, uh, you know, security, c custodial issues. And but anyway, you can get that and read the, the, the each of the headings and then a paragraph or two on each issue. Uh, and then at the end, they say, and we, the Department of Labor, are going to investigate plan sponsors who include cryptocurrency investments and related products in their plans. And as, as Josh mentioned, uh, as designated investment alternatives or DIAs or what you might call the plans lineup or the plans core investments. If it's one of those, we're going to investigate. Had that been the end of it, it would have been controversial enough. But then the Department of Labor went on and said, and if you include it in a brokerage window, we're going to investigate that too and say, in light of all the concerns we've expressed in this uh, compliance assistance release, as it's called, we're going to ask you, the fiduciaries, to justify how you could do that. And uh, I, I read this, Josh, as, as the DOL is saying, hey, everybody out there, be really careful because we're really concerned about this. We're trying to freeze you in place and not have anybody at it because we don't want to get behind the curve, have a whole bunch of plans at it, and then us come back and, and issue something more authoritative. So this is sort of something you can get out the door quickly. It's called sub-regulatory guidance, simply an expression of opinion. Uh, they added in that we're going to investigate you, which scared the daylights out of people. Uh, and they added in uh, 
the brokerage account part, which really aggravated the whole legal community because the perception for years has been that fiduciaries have that a brokerage account is a service, not an investment. Mm -hmm. It's a service with thousands of investments and participants can go do whatever they want, but there's no duty of the plan fiduciaries to look inside and decide if every investment is. Fiduciaries still have to make sure that offering a brokerage window is they right from a fiduciary perspective that offering the window is prudent. But look, you know, but I, looking through into the actual investments of what participants buy and sell once they, you know, open or have access to the window. At that, the prevailing wisdom historically has been like fiduciaries don't have any responsibility as far as that goes. Exactly. The DOL is saying is actually if participants are buying crypto through a window, we're going to investigate that as well. That yeah, seems to be all that seems to be new ground covered in what historic history would suggest. Yeah. And, and, the, the, and informal comments, the department is backing off that a little bit, but they also said we, the Department of Labor have never said that that fiduciary responsibility stops at the door of a brokerage mm -hmm. account. And so they're not backing off all the way. They're just saying, uh, I think they realize that for this being in really informal, low-level guidance, soft guidance, that they went too far. Mm -hmm. And so I think they're just trying to, you know, to, to uh, file down the rough edges a little bit of what they said. But there's more to come. So where does that leave you in terms of adding crypto to your plan? Well, you know, talking from the advisor perspective, I would say, you know, what is your prudent process for selecting and monitoring a cryptocurrency investment? And, uh, for example, most investment policy statements say that the investment has to be uh, has to have at least a three year track record. Are uh, advisors going to ignore that and add investments that don't have a three year track record? Uh, I mean, if so, you got to amend the IPS. Uh, do you really want to do that? Uh, well, you, really you know, you have met like a Bitcoin theoretically has a, you know, average. exactly. But yeah. you're talking about some of these newer coins that are coming on my I mean, my sense is but remember, it's not just the coin or the investment. It's the vehicle it has to have a three year track record the way most IPSs are written. So the Bitcoin history, if you're going to invest directly in Bitcoin, that might work. But if it's a fund that's being put together mm -hmm. and managed, you want to know that the, what the manager's experience. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying you really got to look. There's more here than meets the eye. And, uh, for example, what does the IPS say about how you prudently select and monitor investments? What is the advisor's defined process for selecting and monitoring uh, funds in the crypto area? Uh, on and on and on. I, I, I just think when you drill down below what the mutual fund managers are saying and what the deal is saying, there are a lot of practical issues for plan committees and advisors on, okay, how do we do that? I mean, how do we actually do it? So that's the, the feedback that I'm getting is that most plans, especially fear of, I mean, basically the DOL said, if you put crypto in your plan, like we're going to give you a proctology exam. Like, <laughs> and who wants that? My sense is what's also going to happen is, and this is kind of my, this is why I think 
my gut tells me that for the very for, for the foreseeable future is I think it's kind of a no go is I don't think record keepers are going to sign on and say, hey, we'll be a fiduciary to these digital assets for plan sponsors. I think compliance wise, I think compliance departments, I mean, you see it now in most cases in advisory agreements. You know, you wrote my advisory agreements for years and like there were excluded assets where, you know, we would be a, you know, we'd be a fiduciary to the, the DIAs, but there were certain types of investments, you know, private real estate is an example where, you know, we, we, we would not be, we would carve it out the agreements. I don't think many compliance departments are going to allow their advisors to actually be fiduciaries to digital assets. I think it's gonna get carved out in the advisory agreements. Um, and so I think what'll happen is you'll get some, you know, you'll get the plan sponsors where probably like the business owner is all in on crypto and is gonna be like, I wanna do this, but they're not gonna get any air cover. They're not, they're gonna be flying blind from a fiduciary perspective. Advisors aren't gonna be able to be fiduciaries because their firms aren't going to let them compliance wise because the risk is just going to be way too much. You're going to get record keepers that if they offer it, they're not going to be a fiduciary. So a committee is going to essentially, they're going to be flying blind. I, I just, I don't know. I don't see a whole lot of uptake. Um, and I think most plans, like you see it every now and then, but you don't have employees that are coming and banging like, we want this investment option. And the committee's like, okay, well, everybody wants it. We're going to give it to them. So um, I don't know. I, 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 I still kind of think it's, it's one of those things that could be available, but not really utilized because of the, you know, because of the downsides. I don't know what your take. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, as sad as it is to say, it's not fiduciary breaches that cause litigation. It's big losses. Yeah. And then the plaintiff's attorneys go looking right. for the fiduciary breach. Right. And so to the extent that you put a highly volatile investment in a plan, you do, I mean, just as a practical matter, you increase the probability of, of fiduciary breach litigation down the line. Yeah. Uh, and if they, and, and then, you know, you might imagine nowadays, now that that DOL guidance is out there, the plaintiff's attorney saying, here's five things the DOL said we're high risk. I'm going to, in your deposition, I'm going to ask you about your experience and expertise, your evaluation process, how your decision making occurred, who you got advice from on every one of these five. And, you know, I mean, what is the HR person who chairs the committee going to say about that? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. A, a couple of the other things, though, you know, you've got guidance around crypto, you've got guidance around ESG, around private equity as well, which seems like it's kind of tied into... You know, really, you, you've got now, and I think the DOL, why they're providing guidance is, you know, you've got essentially additional new products, new strategies that, you know, even five years ago, weren't really contemplated in the qualified space that now through product development and access are. How do you see the parallels or how does like the crypto guidance, how does that, is that influences in, or influenced or impacted or tied to things like the ESG and the private equity guidance? I think particularly private equity and crypto are connected at the hip in the sense that um, the questions by the government or by a litigation attorney will be, what was your competency for selecting and evaluating this particular kind of investment? 
for example, in the private equity area, the DOL did actually focus on that issue a little bit. They said, we think that very large plans, which Josh and I might think of as billion-dollar-plus plans, mega plans, uh, that may be using private equity and hedge funds inside their defined benefit plans, and they have consultants for that. We think they may have the expertise to include private equity as a component of a portfolio, not as a standalone investment in the plan, but as a component of the portfolio. Uh, recently, in the Intel decision, the court found that they used private equity and hedge funds within their custom target date series to uh, manage risk, to reduce volatility. And uh, the plaintiff's attorney sued saying, hey, uh, you got lower returns than the three big target date fund suites did. Uh, Intel and their consultants defended saying, we designed this to be less volatile. That's what these were used for. We had a strategy. We went through a prudent process. Uh, on the upside, they went up less. On the downside, they went down less. They 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 exactly implemented our strategy. The court threw out the plaintiff, just threw them out and said, look, it, you can't force a plan to include more aggressive investments. They're entitled to look at the demographics of their workforce and design their investment strategy appropriately. So, but that's Intel with billions of dollars. The DOL then went on in the private equity guides and said, however, we doubt that small plan sponsors have the expertise to do it. So they threw the gauntlet at, at smaller plans. And uh, the, the way the law works is if the committee doesn't have the expertise, the committee members individually, none of them have the expertise to be able to say, yes, I've really looked into these non-transparent, uh, high cost relative to many mutual funds vehicles. Uh, we don't, you know, because the first thing from the plaintiff's attorney's mouth will tell me about your education experience to be able to evaluate these. And they say, hey, we don't have it. But then the law says, well, you can hire a consultant. But then the, then the consultant will be on the stand and the plaintiff's attorneys will be saying, give me your history. Uh, tell me, tell me how many of these you looked at. Tell me which ones you've looked at. Tell me what the outcomes were. I mean, they will grill the consultant. If the consultant doesn't have a fairly impressive resume on that, mm -hmm. then that will hurt the consultant and the committee. So, uh, what it comes down to with both crypto, I think ultimately with crypto, even though it's more volatile and private equity and hedge funds, they're all connected at the hip relative to competency of the committee members and of the consultant, the advisor. ESG is a little different, but but it's still the advisor's gonna have an integral role in it. You know, I, I think what was just interesting, if I think kind of common sense, and, and the way that I read the guidance around private equity was the DOL wasn't really contemplating um, like a separate private equity fund as like a DIA um, within, you know, within a plan, that it would be more of, you have a target date manager that has a sleeve of private equity and they've got their analysts and their experts and kind of building it into the actual, so you would get, you would get private equity exposure, not directly as an asset class investment DIA within a plan, but more of would a target date fund have, you know, some private equity exposure with, within it, um, that seemed to me what the kind of the contemplation, um, and I'm sure that you know there there are some target date fund managers that are out there that that looking to compete or differentiate to do that. My sense is crypto is potentially the same way. Like 
you know, that do I'll be interested to see if target date managers actually include crypto as an allocation or a component of their target date strategy. And I would be willing to bet if they did, there's no way they'd have 20% up to a 20% allocation of crypto within a target date strategy, um, which is why I think is really interesting about Fidelity's threshold, if, if, from what I've read at 20%, you know, up to 20% being invested, just seems crazy, uh, just seems crazy to me um, yeah. from that perspective. Couple of thoughts on that, Joshua. If you go back to the original Trump era private equity guidance, it was very specific that it'd be part of a portfolio and yeah. not a standalone yeah. investment. In one of the footnotes, it actually refers some refers to some SEC guidance on another issue, and I forget if it was fifteen percent or twenty percent as a cap, but but there was something in there in one of the footnotes about how okay. uh, not only is it not only is it just a component, but it's also a limited component. Yeah. Uh, then you go to crypto. My understanding of the Fidelity product, and don't anybody rely on this because I haven't read it. I've just heard things, is that in discussions with the plan sponsor, the Fidelity, the record keeper, can limit it to any amount, but no more than 20%. Yeah. So the 20% is an outer cap. If an employer says we think 10% uh, is the appropriate allocation, then they can limit it to 10. Okay. Uh, so that's helpful, yeah. enforced at the plan level. So if a participant, if the employer decided to do this and said, you know what, we're going to let our participants, but we're going to direct Fidelity to cap it at no more than 10%. If a participant came along and said, well, I want to put 20% in, um, even though Fidelity would let a plan sponsor up to 20%, select that. If the plan sponsors directed them to cap it at 10%, that would be the most the participant could actually put of their balance in it. It's going to be directed by, at the plan level, at the direction of the plan sponsor. But in any case, if a plan sponsor went to Fidelity and said, hey, we want to be able to include, let our people do up to 30, you know, Fidelity would say, as you understand it, nope, 20% is the max that we allow on our platform. That's my understanding of how it works. Yeah. 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 By the way, going back to one thing you said earlier that uh, where, you know, somebody at a committee meeting says to the advisor, uh, all of our employees or a lot of our employees want such and such. I have found over the years with experience that is actually one committee member who's talking to member. no employees. Right. That's, exa <laughs> that's exactly right. That's, that, that, that's exactly right. Every. You know, every the, every time when you really peel back the layer of the onion, it's usually one decision maker who's like, I want this fund. Um, yeah. So, um, well, Fred, this has been super, um, super helpful. Um, there's a lot of, you know, just the rapidly evolving and a lot of things, um, a lot of things going on. Um, maybe as we wrap up, I just, just, um, uh, what would be, you know, maybe with everything happening, your top, you know, maybe two or three things that you think advisors kind of on the radar screen uh, in this season, what should they be cognizant of, aware of um, to kind of avoid potential fiduciary landmines? Litigation seems like the Northwestern case, you know, we had litigation that exploded in 2020 and 2021 and then hit a pause for a little bit. I think some plaintiff's attorneys probably waiting to see what would happen with Northwestern. 
Um, and now, you know, if anything, that probably created more questions and, and, and not enough clarity. Um, what are you seeing out kind of litigation on the litigation front or where some of the fiduciary litigation trends are blowing and what advisors at least need to be mindful sure. of uh, what's evolving? Well, the, I mean, the two most common trends are not trends, but, but cases uh, are you're overpaying the record keeper usually because of revenue sharing that isn't getting considered. So benchmark the record keeper, sort of the rule of thumb that if you read all the cases is developing is at least every three years, but the law is as appropriate, which could mean if there was a planned merger, if the assets went up a lot in value. Oh, I mean, just like a material, you know, a material impact <laughs> on the plan. Right. But no less than every three years, I would say just because enough courts have, discussed three years. Uh, so that's one, the record keepers, but that's actually number two. Number one is the expense of the investments. Uh, pardon, uh, they're coming to the get DOL's me. Uh, they're coming at you, Fred. <laughs> the, the, uh, but the, the expense of the investments, and let me let that get by just, okay, here we go. But it's not just the expense of the investments the way you think about it. It's, there's two things there. One, it's, is it the right share class? Uh, if it's a real low expense, non-revenue sharing share class, then that's probably the right share class. If it is a higher expense revenue sharing share class, but the revenue sharing goes to the record keeper and reduces the fees, and it's enough to offset the share class cost differential, courts are saying that's okay. Uh, in fact, I'm aware of two more recent complaints that say that uh, – the, there was a fiduciary breach for failure to pick the lowest net hmm. expense ratio, which means the more expensive share class, but then offset by a bigger offset. So there's, those are just complaints. There are no decisions on that, but there are, you know, the plaintiff's attorneys are catching on. Uh, so that's one. And then just one more quickly that's closely related to that. If no court has said yet you have to select a collective investment trust because it's less expensive. But some courts have gotten really close where it's the same investment manager managing in the same style in the same way in a collective investment trust as in a mutual fund that's being picked for the plan. So if I were y'all, I would have my antennae up for that one. I, I just think, uh, I think that's an area where the rule could change in some subsequent court decision where they could say, well, gee, you got the uh, ABC mutual fund at, I don't know, 75 basis points. You could have gotten the ABC CIT, both growth funds, large cap growth, let's say, at 50 basis points, and you ignored it. Mm. The committee never knew about it. It was never discussed. That looks bad. I, I So that's the first, the first things I mentioned, Josh, were what's happening now. Right. This one is looking out on the horizon and what might happen. Yeah. That's it. That's great. Well, Fred, as always, you've been a huge mentor of mine for the past 15 or 20 years. I appreciate it. Always good to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, a lot of things happening, a lot of things to think about. So um, just for listeners, if you're an advisory firm, um, uh, I would tell you, if you're looking for good guidance, you should you should uh, you should reach out to Fred. Um, hey, at a minimum, you. make sure that you're you're getting 
um, guidance and counsel um, from someone who I think really understands, you know, there's obviously um, lots of ERISA attorneys out there, but really understanding the service provider side and understanding how kind of the, you know, the qualified plan space works because the stakes are going up just in terms of, uh, uh, you know, compliance and regulation and enforcement. So Fred, thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, Josh, thanks. We'll, uh, we'll have you back next year too. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks everybody.